Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of When Movies Were Good. Uh, my name is Rachel, and I'm here with my special weekly guest star, Matt. Matt, how are you doing? I'm great. I can't believe it's 10 episodes already. Time flies. <laughs> it does. <laughs> we thought we'd be out of lockdown, but we're, we've actually uh, here in Melbourne gone into even more severe restrictions, which is a bit sort of horrifying at one time but then it was always going to be this way eventually anyway if things didn't get better so hopefully they do and um so we're about sort of week one or is it week two or one or thereabouts i think we've got a month left of uh, lockdown uh, main thing i know is now that i've postponed my wedding for i think the third time i'm losing track now you know hopefully hopefully the fifth time's a charm <laughs> but yeah thereabouts. so we're in we're, um, yeah, so Matt's had to postpone his wedding again and we're in like what they call stage four lockdown, which is pretty much, you know, you've got to really have a very valid reason apparently to be out on the street at the moment. Uh, very similar to what was going on in the UK, I think, uh, or still is going on over there. But that's okay because we'll keep on keeping on. So we've managed to start our podcast and we're starting from humble beginnings and we've, we're doing Gone with the Wind uh, for, for tonight's episode. And the reason is because we wanted to pay homage a bit to the late, great Olivia de Havilland who passed away very, very recently within the last couple of weeks at the great age of 104. She was born in 1916. I mean, imagine, Matt, the things that she saw in her life, like what life was like for her as a little girl and now. Yeah, it's in, incredible, and uh, like that, uh, her life uh, ended in this final stage in this very strange time. But she saw uh, with um, uh, restrictions and everything, but that she's seen so many phases of history, both in life and in the Hollywood history. And she played such a role in shaping that part of history. And so it will be great to pay homage to her in this episode. Yeah, definitely. Just the amount of films. I mean, I've only ever touched the surface of anything that she's been in. We've already discussed her and her sister Joan a little bit. We did one episode uh, based on the two of them and some films that they did. Uh, but just also she was such a trailblazer in terms of, you know, wanting specific rights for herself as an actress and going to court to get those rights. Uh, and just the different, you know, she was an Academy Award winner, you know, back I think when Academy Awards actually kind of meant something. Uh, and she, you know, the actors that she worked with, the relationships she had in her life, and she really was a part of that golden age. I'm sure not all of it was perfect. Uh, and what are your thoughts on her, Matt? You, you, you're, you're a fan of hers, though. You, you talked about her very early on when I met you. So, I do like um, a lot of her work. I think we uh, both uh, were quite infatuated with her role in Robin Hood and like for many people, my first introduction to her was in Gone with the Wind. And so like with Gone with the Wind, it would be in one of those movies that you see uh, every uh, so often because it's quite a, quite a long one. You interpret it in a new way because you're in a different stage of life each time. And at the same time, I interact with her work in new ways. Of course, I've only touched the tip of the iceberg with her work. And on top of what her... She became almost of a holy relic of a kind towards the end because she was the last of her great generation of Hollywood. I think it is also interesting to discuss, though, the role that she had as part of the de Havilland court decision, which was important on top of her movies. Effectively, right. uh, she said that um, 
she was able to get confirmed in court and a great risk to her career because she effectively had to keep her career on stalemate for about two years. But when yes. several production delays, I can't remember exactly what they were caused by, but uh, effectively the studios in theory at the time could arbitrarily rope you into being contracted with them for longer if you were yes. unavailable for whatever reason. And uh, obviously at, during World War II, this was quite a problem. And uh, Olivia's uh, case happened quite soon after that. And so it meant that effectively you didn't have uh, actors uh, shackled to uh, contracts with studios uh, uh, unfairly uh, and indefinitely after that. And that did pave a way to a new era of the studio system. And, like, we don't really have the studio system now for better or worse, but uh, Olivia did have a help contribute to, uh, I think, a good phase of the studio system where actors got a fairer deal in terms of when they were fairly uh, contracted in the terms of their uh, agreement while they Yes. The studios also did their professional responsibilities. Yeah, she did. Yeah, I did read a bit about that, the, the court case that she had. And um, I recently watched the first movie that she did after that, which was called, I believe, The Well-Groomed Bride with Ray Malanz. <laughs> You're a pillow fantasy. <laughs> Definitely. If I could take a time machine back to the 1930s. But um, so we'll get into this. So just to encapsulate that, we did. I think the only remaining member of Gone with the Wind still alive is the baby that played her son, Bo, in the movie. I was reading that, that he was the last person of the cast that was still alive. And Olivia wanted to play Melanie. She didn't want to play Scarlett. And she loved Melanie's empathy and love. And she said it was one of the happiest experiences. While it was a very gruelling shoot for everybody, it was one of her happiest experiences as an actress because she was playing a character she loved. So I think that's a fantastic thing. I mean, obviously, Scarlett's the role that everyone was vying for, but the fact that she was happy, uh, at she would have been, what, 23, 24 when she did that role? So she was really quite young herself. Mm, and thereabouts, I did the math yesterday. Yeah, she was very, very young and, I mean, you know, just an absolute – she was fantastic. Everyone was good in this film. I know some some of the other actors had a few issues, but we will, we'll cover that as, as quickly as we can. So we're talking about – so Gone with the Wind, um, 1939, released in 1940, I believe – uh, taken from the 1936 novel by Margaret Mitchell. Now, the, the novel is a bit more hard-hitting than the film and obviously certain things going on in the South at that time are more openly discussed in the novel. And that's okay because that's a novel and they made a film and they wanted to make the film entertaining and make it for a large audience. So I understand why they took some. I mean, I might be actually interested to read the novel one day. It, looks, um, it seems it would be historically interesting to read. Directed by Victor Fleming, who was also at near about the same time was directing The Wizard of Oz. Um, Funny story there. Replaced, yeah, he replaced George Cukor that had a lot of falling out with uh, David O. Selznick. And so he got Victor Fleming in, but Victor Fleming was really exhausted and a bit all over the place when he was doing it. So another director called Sam Wood also helped. So George Cukor 
Victor Fleming, who's given the credit, and Sam Wood technically directed the film, produced by David O'Sullivan, who had his hand in every single pie from writing the script, everything. So Sidney Howard was given the um, screenplay um, sort of honours and he did write the screenplay, which was about six hours long to begin with because he was trying to adapt the book. And then also um, Selznick got in a bunch of local writers when Howard wouldn't adapt the, the screenplay down to make it shorter and a guy called Ben Hecht. And, and Matt and I have seen uh, – that play Moonlight and Magnolias where yep. Selznick has to try within five days to get the, apparently that is based on a true story where he gets the writers in to try and cut the script down and basically sends them all insane. And that is, maybe it didn't quite happen like that, but it is based on a, a true story. So Ben Heck did a lot of it too. Yeah. As far as I know, um, I think, uh, Selznick had a few more substances fueling his energy besides peanuts. <laughs> That's right, yeah. So they managed to get it down, but they did say that it was, you know, it still retained a lot of what Sidney Howard had put into it. He actually died about about the time the film came out as well. So maybe that was why they, yeah, that's why they wanted to have him as sort of the the principal writer on it. But uh, there were a lot of people trying to get the script down to a a shorter, cohesive form. I think they did a pretty good job with it, considering how many people were involved. So we have Vivian... Selznick was kind of the only one that knew the whole plot from beginning to end uh, because they kept changing it. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we have to remember that it's an adaptation from a book, so it's not going to be exactly the same. So we have uh, the great Vivian Lee playing Scarlett. Uh, Vivian Lee was English, but she was married to Larry Olivier at the time. She, when he was over in the US doing one of his first US films, Wuthering Heights, which I started watching. I haven't. I need to finish off watching it. Um, she lobbied for the role, and there were many other. There's an, a film actually about how many actresses came out for this role, and she did a. She, while they were actually shooting the start of the film in terms of the, the the first few scenes that they wanted to start shooting, some of the big Civil War scenes. Um, she actually, they still hadn't cast Scarlett and she came in and read for the role and I think it was Selznick's brother who actually put her up for it and she got it and she beat out some very famous people. We had Leslie Howard Including as Ashley. Lucille Ball. <laughs> yeah, oh, really? I, yep. I think everyone in Hollywood wanted this role, everyone, Catherine Hepburn, everyone. But I think they chose... I think they chose the right person. You know, even though she was English, she um, apparently everyone had to work with a with a um, accent and speech coach anyway. And you know, obviously, you know, at that time they would have spoken a bit differently than modern day South anyway. So I think she she worked it and she was perfect for the role. And Leslie Howard played Ashley, who apparently was a bit indifferent. Was kind of just a job to him. Kind of came across that way to me, but he was fine. He did what he needed to do. The great Clark Gable. Well, he didn't feel he could do the role uh, at his age because he was, um, I think, uh, pushing 50 at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So they should have got Ray Milan to do it. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he would have been right in that age group. But, okay, the great Clark Gable, and apparently one of the reasons the film was actually delayed a bit was because Selznick wanted Clark Gable to play Rhett. And, you know, I think he was a great choice for Rhett. And the great Olivia de Havilland as Melanie so we had Hattie McDaniel in her Academy Award-winning performance as Mammy. We had Oscar Polk as Pork and the great Butterfly McQueen as Prissy. I think they were all fantastic 
I think they were just as good as anybody else in that film. They deserve to be there. She deserved the Academy Award and they should be proud of their work in the film, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, so Sydney Howard was wrote the screenplay, as we discussed. Max Steiner um, did the music, so the great Tara's theme. Uh, he was also helped, apparently Franz uh, Waxman and a few other people, they had some musical cues in the, like David O. Selznick had the rights to use some of their music. So some of the musical cues in the film actually have some other um, composers attached to them and Ernest Haller, the cinematographer, who I think did a, a great a great job. So as we know, let's quickly go through the story because really the, the heart of the story is not much. It's the tumultuous relationship between Scarlet and Rhett set against the backdrop of the American Civil War and restoration and two important characters in Scarlet's life, Melanie and the love of supposed love of her life, Ashley. So what did you actually, what did you think of the story? What did you think of the script? I thought it was a very, well, uh, like I said a bit before, I've uh, seen this film uh, several times in my life. The first time was probably about 12, and it's I, I'm a different person each time I see it just because of the time that um covers. And when I saw it the most recently for this podcast, I've never, there are a few times when I'm, uh, so moved by a movie, and I found the story so much more relatable now. I, even though Scarlet is terribly vain, she's selfish. I could never, in good conscience, do never even minding uh, some of the things she does to make money afterwards in desperation. Just some of the moral choices she makes as a partner, like, uh, but, uh, She's driven by this blind love for someone, uh, which she, at her heart, knows that she can't get in return. And it's kind of that lethal combination of uh, someone desperately in love, but also who can't get it in return, but also someone who's very used to being good at uh, manipulating things the way she wants. And yeah. so it is a perfect plot driver. It's uh, and so often, um, Red Butler's sort of um, uh, categorizes just the person in the that says "damn" at the end of the film. But I found him to be like I admit it. It's probably uh, not less that he's relatable a character than that I'd like to be him. Uh, yeah. Ex except for <laughs> except for doing almost date rape in one scene, but that's another story. Yeah. Um. Uh. But he's uh the one character strong enough to uh, to push this uh, stormy southern southern bell uh, towards um knowing really um uh, that she's uh sort of uh, really leading herself off the wrong track yeah uh, yeah i i mean i think I, it had always just been the length of the film that put me off i'm really a person that really likes an hour and a half long movies that's as long as i think a movie needs to be and if you me too you, i'm uh, I, I do get a bit nervous when i have to test my bladder that long <laughs> well and also i guess now you know back then going to the cinema was was a, an experience you had the intermission you had got dressed up it's not quite obviously unfortunately and especially not at the moment. It's not like that anymore when you go to the, the movies. It's more of a throwaway experience most of the time. But back then it was a uh, it was a great outing. Yeah. So I mean, I up, until the, 
well, up until the 70s, they were still making the odd epic picture that would have, like, hour and a half intermission, then an hour and a half. But I think part of that was, uh, for one thing, a lot of uh, film distributors uh, probably wanted shorter films that were easier to have more sessions in, so you get more um, ticket sales that way. But also, I think uh, studi- studios also learned their lesson that it was dangerous to invest too much in one um in one picture uh, because often they really went all it when you have longer movies you go all overboard uh, with sets and costumes and like even look at selznicker he uh, had uh, all the nicely dressed ladies wearing real lace under their dresses that the camera didn't even see and when one of the uh, ladies said but you don't need to have all this extra lace here mr selznick um no one will see it and he was like You'll know. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's it's amazing, you know. And I guess as they sort of moved into the seventies and eighties, they started making these epic miniseries, which I am a huge fan of. Those sort of old-fashioned miniseries that went over three or four nights. So they kind of started doing epic stories in that way, which had a lot of validity. So I always thought, oh God, if you've really got that much story to tell, do a short-form series or a miniseries or something. But it actually wasn't a problem to watch it. I did watch it in a few sittings because I'm just not the sort of person to sit there for four hours. But it wasn't a problem to watch it. Like I was happy to go back and keep watching it and, and keep watching the story. And really, it's like a soap opera. At the base of it is just this willful woman. Every American soap opera and all other soap operas around the world have that major bitch character in the middle. <laughs> and it's all about, you know, you know, um, you know, the unrequited love of the person she puts up on a pedestal. And, and you know what? She actually was a really tough character. She, I, I didn't actually realise that they lost Tara and she lost everything and her parents died and she was out there at the hospital and doing all sorts of things. And, you know, as, as uh, Willful she was and... There, admittedly, she went there in the first place to sort of um, uh, trap Ashley into um, going away with her again. Yes. Um, but uh, she got to do some good things on, on the way by default. <laughs> Yeah, she did, but she she you know she was really put upon herself. You know, there's that sort of triumphant moment at the end of the first half where she's standing in silhouette against the mat, you know, background and that sort of burnt orange background. And I'm like, oh wow, I didn't actually realise that they lost everything too. I thought she just remained, you know, because I, I didn't know too much about the film other than, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which everyone knows. But I didn't actually realise that she'd lost it all and a lot of her manipulations were, yeah. you know, to try to get back what she believed that she had lost, whether that made her happy or not. Well, that's, um, uh, so I actually did enjoy enjoy it. I, I think what I would have liked to have seen at the start was a bit more of why she was so in love with Ashley, like maybe a childhood scene or something of her, you know, her and him together or something like that, just to give us a hint of why she was so in love with him. It was sort of just like, I'm in love with him, that's it. And I was like, oh, okay. But I guess because I had to really, get maybe that was one of the... Because really, um, to um, at least get the vibe from the early stage of the film, I can't imagine that Ashley would have actually done that much to encourage her affections because this was an age where flirtation was... Um, moving your glove off your wrist slightly and yes. smiling that's that sort yeah. of thing and so it love triangles can sort of be more complicated or less complicated now because you can be a lot more uh, showy but i think it was simply that uh, mm. 
Scarlet. I mean, it is hard to tell what age she was really meant to be in the film. I'm not sure what she was yes. meant to be in the book. I haven't read the read the book myself. But if she was sort of in her pangs of first love and used to and used to um every boy in the county fawning for her, then it, mm. perhaps she uh, set her eyes on the most noble uh, character in the region. Yeah, and I suppose if he wasn't that interested in her, it may, you know, it was obviously she had built him up to something in her mind that he clearly he clearly wasn't, and we saw that as the film progressed. Uh, so, you know, then this character of Rhett comes in, and, I mean, you know, Clark Gable is so charismatic in that role, and it just pushes from one thing into the other, and then, of course, you have this really tragic, horrible backdrop of this devastating war that the U.S. is still trying to reconcile themselves with to this day. And the there is not can't... a moment. Of, there is not a moment of genuine glorification of um, war in that film. Uh, it's right. uh, it's it's almost um, comical the way the men, uh, gentlemen, chaps at the beginning are so enthusiastic. Yeah, and they were because they saw it, you know, they obviously saw it as a loss of their lifestyle and how dare you and all this sort of stuff. I don't think they really ever thought about the full implications of what they were doing and whether things were right or wrong. It was just the lifestyle. It was all they knew. So that's why they were fighting to keep it. But that uh, some of those horrific scenes, um, you know, in Atlanta and, you know, all those men on the ground, that crane shot, I was watching a, a piece of footage of how they had to do that, pulled back crane shot and that's not something that they could reel it now it's nothing to do that and it would probably be all done with computers anyway but um, instead of back the then, dummies I, with the uh, pull arms that they yes, had back then yes i didn't actually realize that because apparently they couldn't get enough extras for that day so they had to get all these dummies and one of the extras was saying who was obviously the interview was done many years ago that one of the extras who was still alive was like oh yeah we were on the ground and we had to make the dummy move and all this stuff but Really, I mean, when I was sort of watching it closely when they showed the footage again, you you couldn't really notice. But I just thought overall the film was just such a beautiful-looking film and everybody who was cast in that film was perfect for their roles. What did you think of – so this is more your forte than mine. So obviously because, one, they didn't have the money to go to all these locales and build all these, you know, houses from scratch and this and that – and Tara was a facade that was built from wood and paper mache and all sorts of things that was a set. It was just a frontal set. And, um, you know, the house in Atlanta was, you know, it was a building, it was O'Selznick's building, but these places didn't really exist. Everything was shot on that RKO backlot in Culver City, uh, yeah. which I've actually visited myself. What did you think of the matte design? It's clear it's not real, but it just looks so great anyway. Well, I mean, what did you think of it? Well, it's just so it, – it, it's such a miracle of uh, creative production, uh, some of the effects they did make. Well, yes, a lot of the scenery can look artificial in a way. Part of it, I think, is the tender color they made it in because the those really bright, almost cartoonish colors make it especially – and that it wasn't all just bright and colorful. For war scenes, they could get really gritty when they wanted to be and the like, but – that color, that colorful um, uh, punchiness of a lot of the scenes uh, makes you forgive uh, some of the more 
because it really is almost like an idyllic watercolor painting and the fact that a lot of the skies and even and every ceiling you see there is not a genuine ceiling in any sense yes. in the they use in the film that is all painted by hand on glass which yes. they then put onto yes. onto film and and I think just modern filmmakers just don't know how easy they have it um they, they it's, don't. it's uh, so amazing but uh, on top of um, the what they created artificially, one really impressive thing that they did for real was in the scene of the burning of Atlanta. They basically yeah. had a huge collection of old sets that they <laughs> yeah. got ready to set alight. And Didn't they, David O'Self himself set them all? <laughs> well, not not single handedly, and it was a bit more professional and uh, complex than simply lighting a match to a bunch of buildings like they had a whole system of pumps and fields and i think so they could sort of adjust the level of flame to so they could control it to an extent and in that part where you have a final fall of a building that's burning that was actually the giant two-piece wall that king kong burst through Oh, right. Yeah, I did. I, I know that they shot King Kong out there and part of the sets that they used. I didn't, yeah, in, a guy was going around the studio yeah. and he well, was well, saying that, yeah. Yeah, well, now if your friends ask, I wonder what happened to King Kong's wall and you can say they burnt it. <laughs> and apparently yeah. some of the, um, this, the Tara sets, uh, like the facade of Tara is still around. It's just in a warehouse somewhere in Atlanta, apparently. Someone wouldn't had bought it and then someone bought it and, yeah. Wouldn't surprise me, uh, g going back to Olivia de Havilland, it really hit home uh, the, of how she was saying that when she moved to Paris in the 50s, how much she enjoyed it. She loved seeing real castles and buildings as opposed to canvas. And you do get a, <laughs> a, an idea of that if you go on one of the studio tours at Universal or anywhere where you have an idea of this huge... Um, what was once a huge amount of desert and forest land made into this huge lot of um, ready-to-build uh, sets and, and walls and worlds that can be moved at will. And it's yeah. it, so it's like both intoxicating and tragic at the same time. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, you know, I've been to, like yourself, I've been to a few of those places and I have seen the outside of the, what they call the Culver City Studios, which is the Selznick Studios with that grand white house that was Rhett's house. Uh, they ended up using that for Rhett's house and using some matte paintings to sort of make it look like it was in Atlanta back then. And, I mean, it's really, you know, it's just amazing that so many amazing things were shot in all these places and it's like, appreciate it appreciate what went on there so uh i just thought yeah i thought i just thought it didn't doesn't matter how quote unquote fake all this scenery looks i just loved it it just gave it this sort of otherworldly you know like dreamlike quality to the whole film and it was it's a big raging soap opera-ish love story and you know i get that there's some controversial things in it but it was a film shot in the late 30s, set in 1865, and it's very easy 80 years later to say, oh, this, this, this and this. But at the time, it was a product of the time, and I think we can just appreciate that, you know what I mean? So It is interesting uh, for some of those actors, though, to hear um, interviews from them later in their life because many of them were proud of their role 
proud of their roles. Even, uh, actually, this is a bit of a story of how we need to be careful of how we are judging any character or scene, because one of the, I think, people, one of the parts of the film that people often pick out as being um, uh, poor for modern morals in the film is um, the, like, the undermade played by Butterfly McQueen, who's portrayed as this very nervous person with a high-pitched voice, and I thought, oh, they must have been making her uh, put on this very high-pitched, uh, weak accent. But then I heard an interview with her just yesterday where she was in old age, and that was her natural voice. I felt terrible. <laughs> she was fantastic. She was really oh, she was out a, there. She, she was amazing. You know? I mean, she, the character she played was in many yeah. ways... Uh, a selfish person. She she lied about being able to deliver birth to someone who was very critically ill, um, and in a war zone. Admittedly, she was uh, fearful for her own safety, but uh, but basically, every group is entitled to have good and bad characters. Yeah, and and the, uh, to me, the the black characters in the film were treated and they were respected as part of the family. Even Rhett says that he wants Mamie's respect. He wants her to like him. He says that in the film and she, dish, of- Mamie dishes, you know, dishes it out to them as well and manhandles them and takes them around. And I, I, I myself, I mean, my dad's from Africa and stuff and I didn't, I didn't have a problem with it. I know other people do, but you there know, that's actually, um, there is actually a story of uh, one of the black extras approaching Clark Gable, and it's a even now it's a big thing if any extra uh, approaches one of one of the stars un, unannounced. Uh, Tom Cruise once uh, had an extra thrown off set for looking at him directly in the eye, but that's another yeah. uh, story. But um, he told Gable that on the set uh, they had segregated uh, toilets, and Gable, I believe, arranged to have all the signs removed. He was outraged at the, uh, on hearing of it. That's right, and he they want at the Academy Awards ceremony, they they wanted Hattie McDaniel there. He wanted Hattie McDaniel there, and they thought it was outrageous that she wasn't there. You know what I mean? So, what, and what I think, a lot of people seem to critique about the film um, in terms of um, Hattie McDaniel not being able, having to be taken from the back of the room, and also not being her and uh, Butterfly not being allowed to attend the premiere in Atlanta. That's much more a reflection on the movie houses and the uh, and the function room that those um, later events occurred in. Selznick right. himself uh, went to great efforts to um, be sensitive to a lot of um, how he wanted to have a universally uh, appreciable film. He, although we they're often lumped together, they were made about twenty four years apart. But he knew well about Birth of a Nation and how. D.W. Griffith had sort of ignorantly made this flashy film and almost stupidly uh, did not think about how some of his um, uh, how some of his uh, more offensive uh, references to the Klan and everything would be interpreted by um, uh, anyone who was uh, living with the consequences in that in that time. And he didn't Selznick didn't want that to happen to him. He wanted yeah. his film to have a good enduring legacy. Yeah, I just yeah, I, I mean, I, I I just thought they were amazing, and they were every bit as good as the leading cast, and they made the film as well. Their parts were really important, and 
They were loved by the main characters. They were respected by the main characters. They were playing characters too. It wasn't just like they were these single-sided 3D, you know, they were 3D characters, you know, who good, bad, the ugly. I just thought they were fantastic and I thought they really made the film. So, I mean, I guess I must have a different opinion of it than certain other people who are critiquing the film now. But uh, I don't know, have any of these people seen the film? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. So, well, but, the, yeah, the I mean. Thing, the, the big thing is is that it is a film about uh, Scarlett. It is a film primarily about Scarlett O'Hara and um, the way she interacts with the immediate yeah. world around her. Uh, so it isn't it isn't a, a, a trying to address the entire the entire war. It um uh, right. doesn't look at the history or politics of the civil war and only fleetingly looks at the like they the I have more issue with how they were um dealing with the what they historians called the carpetbaggers era afterwards and some of the. Uh, ways they portrayed a re the reconstruction period uh, but I, i'm not an expert on it but i think um uh it was a much more of a human story than a historical one yeah definitely i mean you could go through any historical film and point out every single floor and i mean i i get it but i think most people who are sensible who are watching the film now understand that you know time has changed and changed for the better and you know, it is a thing, um, you know, it is a product of the time when it was made and a, and partially a product of the era that it's trying to capture. But at the end of the day, it's about, as you said, about Scarlett, it's kind of her journey, her life and her family was, I didn't actually realise the O'Hara's, I didn't actually realise her father was Irish-Irish, obviously O'Hara's a, a, an Irish name, but I didn't actually realise her dad was actually Irish, not just a great grandparent or whatever. So I was, it was very interesting seeing him at the start of the film. So, but overall, I enjoyed the film a lot more than I wanted to. I mean, at the time it was made, it was one of the most, if not the most expensive film made at three point eight five million dollars. I think the nineteen twenty five version of Ben Hur had cost more. And uh, apparently they weren't allowed to say damn in in the movie. But when you um, watch it now, you uh, wonder that's the least of anything controversial yes. they could have done. <laughs> Actually, it was a production. good. Well, it, it's a good line of uh, Gables of uh, being you you hypocrite. You don't mind about my knowing them just by talking about them. And uh, there are many <laughs> innuendos they make that are much worse than damn. Yeah, that's right. But the production code office, you know, said that they could do it because it was, you know, appropriate for the era uh, of when the characters lived or some such like that. So he got away with saying it. So, you know, but it was a great way to to finish the story. I didn't actually realise the film was so open-ended, but that's apparently the, how the book the book ended. And then there was a sequel that another woman wrote many years later called Scarlet. So that was made into a miniseries with Joanne Wally Kilmer and Timothy Dalton playing Scarlet and Rhett. So I'd actually be interested to watch that because it's apparently about their life after that. So, you know, the soap opera lover in me 
would definitely like to check out and see. Apparently she goes to live in Ireland for a while. So, you know, for those of you, I'm sure it's available out there if you wanted to see it. It's like a four-part miniseries. So to sum it all up, I just I, – I get it now. I never really got gone with the wind and why everyone rambled on about it all the time. I do now. It's not something I'd probably go back and watch over and over again, but I'm sure I will see it again in my life, uh, in my again. lifetime. Maybe <laughs> – it's just one of those movies you just put on, it's there, it's going, you know, you're getting involved in it, she's an absolute cow, you know, he's an idiot, you know, it's beautiful, it's got great music, you know, I love a lot of the characters in it, I love Hattie McDaniel's character and she whacks her around and stuff. I just think it's, I think it's great, you know, I think it's great. So, you know, I really was surprised at actually how much I did, I did like it. So, have you got any final thoughts there? Well, um, as far as this is a big, this is a big film, a, a lot of um, huge amounts of historical interest as well as modern uh, social and uh, creative interest around it. And that's why I say, uh, especially for films like this, don't cheap out and get a poor quality, um, uh, a poor quality version of the film uh, where uh, it doesn't have extra information. It is uh, worth it to either get um, the iTunes version or a good quality DVD that not only is the picture um, much better, uh, but you also have, but you also have all these extra documentaries, which are so fascinating and provide so much revealing information. I'd just like to say that we conceived of this episode as a, a tribute to Olivia de Havilland because she was the uh, last great actress of her era I'd also sort of like to say R.I.P. to Vivian Lee because she was t- I, on the opposite spectrum. She was taken from the world far too young. She had also great problems with mental health as well. And so, for those um, two great ladies that made this film, I uh, I salute them. Yeah, and I didn't realize that three out of the four of the lead roles in this film were English. So Leslie. Um, Olivia and Vivian. I mean, uh, uh, Vivian was born in, you know, um, British India. Uh, Olivia was born in Japan to British parents, but some part of Japan where English people lived, I think, at the time, from what I was reading. And then uh, Leslie, I believe, was from the mainland UK. But to have three out of the four, you know, who were actually English and they pulled it off quite well, so um, which is – and Leslie Howard, it's uh, fascinating because he actually di- was one of the first major actors to die uh, during World War Two, not yes. in combat, but he was on like a sort of goodwill mission in a civilian plane, and it got um, hit down by the Germans in circumstances that are still not fully known till today. Yeah, I was reading that before we, we went on air, and, and then, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, wow, I didn't realise that that had happened to him. So that was, uh, and, and good old Clark Gable came from Ohio. So there you go. <laughs> Yeah. So there you go. So, uh, and they all have their place in film history, thanks in part to this film. So, thank you to everybody uh, who was with us on this um, discussion because we don't so much review films, we discuss them and we talk about our feelings to do with them. So, we, we wouldn't ever say to someone, don't go and watch something, watch it, make, make your own mind up and see what you think about it. And this is a film that you should do that with if you, you, you're so inclined to one day. And just a quick introduction to our next film double that we will be discussing, uh, to John Steinbeck, the John Steinbeck double with Grapes of Wrath, 1940, directed by John Ford, 
and East of Eden, 1955, directed by Elia Kazan. And Matt and I were just discussing that we needed to see Grapes of Wrath, and I've been meaning to see a James Dean film for like the past 20 years and have never got around to it. So. Yeah, and I'd like to dispel from my mind because at the moment I haven't uh, read or seen Grapes of Wrath, and at the moment the only image I have in my head is uh, Nelson from The Simpsons uh, doing a diorama of the Grapes of Wrath by crushing grapes with a hammer at his school. <laughs> well, of course you do. <laughs> But we're actually, I'm actually looking forward to these, uh, to doing these two. So it's been a long time coming and I've heard a lot about both of the films. Um, Hen- a young Henry Ford was in Grapes of Wrath and obviously um, James Dean, uh, the late great James Dean was in East of Eden, one of the big three films that he made before he died. So I'm looking forward to it. I know Matt will look forward to it as well. And just, of course, before we finish tonight, Matt, I have to say that Dallas, the TV show, was set our shot at the Culver City Studios. We're gone with the wind of his films. Just had to just had to put that one into it as well. So if it's so, got yes. Larry Hagman, Rachel knows about it. Yes, Larry Hagman, <laughs> Ray Milland, several other people, definitely. I'm I'm there for it. So thank you to everyone for um and and uh, Matt, just tell everyone where they can find us again. As always, we're on YouTube and Vimeo, so To be notified of future content, please hit subscribe and also uh, tap the bell notification because you don't automatically get uh, informed anymore from YouTube just by hitting subscribe. So if you want to get notified of new episodes, tap the bell. But we release a new episode every two weeks and you can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at When Movies Were Good. Just look for the Bogart. Yeah, thank you. So check us out there. And we hope that you join us on our next one. So in the meantime, I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and good night.